You're listening to TIP. Literally every single time I give a presentation in person or on a webinar is I ask this question, you know, what is your familiarity with cost creation? You know, A, the first time you're hearing of it, you know, B, I've heard of it, but don't really understand it. You know, C, I know really well, I've used it, et cetera. So the vast majority, I'd say still to this day, about 80% of any group that I speak to is in that first category of either they've never heard of it or they've heard of it, but don't understand it. Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Yona Weiss, and we did a deep dive on how cost segregation works and how it can generate significant tax savings for real estate investors. We also touched on how he transitioned from education to real estate in his 30s, how his first fix and flips went, what he means when he says your network is your net worth, and how education and giving back will always be an important part of his life. Yona is a powerhouse with property owners' tax savings. As business director at Madison Specs, a national cost segregation leader, he's assisted clients in saving hundreds of millions of dollars on taxes through cost segregation. He's got a background in teaching and a passion for real estate and helping others, and he's a real estate investor and host of the top podcast, Weiss Advice. Cost segregation was a new topic for me and one that I wanted to learn more about. This was really a masterclass on how it works and what the benefits are to real estate investors. It may have been a somewhat self-serving interview as I'm getting ready to do my own cost segregation study on an office building that I'm renovating, but this is really valuable information for investors and an aspect of the tax code that many people just simply don't know about or don't understand. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Yona Weiss. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 show. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is the king of cost segregation, Yona Weiss. Yona, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Great to finally talk, Patrick. We were talking a little bit before the podcast started. You are in Israel. Tell us what brought you to Israel and what you're up to there. Well, it's uh, you know really in COVID, I saw a lot of people doing things uh, remotely. And I uh, really have a lot of affinity to the country here. Don't have a lot of family, but just always loved it. And I've been back and forth a ton of times over the last 20 years. And so I just uh, kind of decided to make it my own. So the family and I are now here full time. That's awesome. And what city are you in? We're in Jerusalem. So the main uh, capital city, biggest city in Israel. And it's it's just, it's an amazing place. And love working remotely because it's, uh, you don't get the best of both worlds. That's awesome. And you've got six kids. You've got the whole family over there. Yeah, good job keeping track. Yeah, it's hard for you to keep track, I bet. Not quite, not quite. But yeah, they're amazing. Great. Yeah, my oldest is is now 18, so she's in her last year of high school. And uh, yeah, just really, really enjoying life. I wanted to actually talk about your younger years. You come from a family of teachers. I wanted to talk and learn a little bit about was money and investing in real estate something that was taught in the household growing up? Not at all. So I grew up in Southern California and kind of middle-class family. You know, my mother was a teacher. My grandparents on my mother's side were both teachers. My father was, you know, in business. He did a number of different things, but changed career paths. Not not really an entrepreneur per se. Had a couple different businesses. But, you know, we were taught at a young age 
to, you know, if you, we wanted something, we'd have to work for it. And so I had the, not necessarily finances, but work ethic and the understanding of, you know, money doesn't grow in trees and really words, I would not say privileged at all. I mean, I went to, uh, in the neighborhood we lived was a little more upper middle class, but we were definitely on the lower end of that spectrum. You know, like all my friends in high school had brand new cars when they were 16 and stuff like that. Uh, definitely not my case. You know, I had a, a used car that was a hand-me-down from an older brother that, you know, I had to pay for. It was like an 85 Buick Skylark. Yeah. It was like, really, you know, well, all my friends had brand new, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I definitely had the awareness that, you know, money was, was an issue, but I never really had any education in terms of saving or financial literacy and that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot of it later in life. Is it something that you are teaching your kids now? Money and investing and talking about what you do with real estate investments? Definitely. To a certain extent. I mean, they're definitely not getting it in school either, like I did, but uh, I'm sharing them with different things, teaching them about saving and investing and all that kind of stuff. I have invested on their behalf also in a couple of deals. So, you know, to each one on their own, obviously the, the eight-year-old is not going to really know much about what that means. More abstract, but... You know, it's like, oh, I have money and uh, I'll get more money later. So growing up as a kid, what kind of career aspirations did you have? I really didn't have any career aspirations. I, I was a teacher from a young age, like a, a tutor and a camp counselor and you know, youth group kind of advisor and things like that. So I was always working with kids, always enjoyed teaching. And you know, I, I went to college with, for a history degree because I didn't really have any career aspirations. It was like you had to pick a degree. And I, I was pretty good with remembering names and, and dates and kind of stuff like that. But I literally had, had no career aspirations whatsoever. And it was only, and I continued being a teacher just because that was my passion. And I love that. And it was just, you know, something I paid the bills a little bit, but I never had any real aspiration for for making money. Never. And to this day, I still don't, even though, well, thank God now I am making a lot of money. I don't have any desire to make more money per se. It's just about having enough to, you know, to help my family just be relatively, I mean, everyone has a different level, but we're very frugal. Have My family should have enough to get by to have what we need, basic needs. And, you know, what I can give away, it really is, is really one of my main focuses. So charity and that kind of work is something I focus on extensively. I want to get into your faith later here in the talk, but I read on your website that your grandmother calls teaching the family business. That's really cool. And so, you know, that's been a big part of your life. You mentioned history. What was the focus of your studies? And then I'm curious how you've been able to bring that into the real estate world, how it's impacted your, how you just operate in the, in the business world. So I never really had a focus in history. You have to pick a focus a little bit. And I actually took a year abroad to study in Israel, which is where I kind of grew my, my love for the country and uh, my first time visiting. And so I did more of a focus on Jewish history, did a lot of studies in that, both in San Diego where I went to college and in Israel on that year abroad. But because of, I just have a really good memory for names and places. Like if I meet someone, for example, I'll remember them, even if it's years and years later. Uh, a very good memory for that. So that's actually helped me tremendously on social media as well, because it's hard for people to keep track. Uh, but for me, it's, it's actually pretty easy because if we met or we had a conversation, I'll remember, I'll remember you and remember your name and remember some details about you. It's just kind of a natural gift that I have. So for me, that was just history was the easiest thing that I could do just because of that. And again, didn't really have any focus in doing anything with it other than just getting a degree, which 
ironically, I had no use for or desire for after and actually was not even in the country when uh, to attend graduation and had my diploma sent to my parents' house. And I, I don't think I've even seen it to this day. So. That's funny. So I know you like on your podcast, you like to ask some questions. And one of them is like the worst job somebody's had. What were some of those early jobs like during college or after college? What did your early career look like? Yeah, I had kind of odds and ends of jobs from the time I was in you know high school. Again, most of them were, I was, I was a camp counselor, I was a youth advisor, I was a, a tutor and that kind of stuff. So those were things that I actually really enjoyed, although some of them were pretty difficult. But one summer I had a horrible experience working as a, at a, a magazine in the advertising department. So I'd have to like cold call people trying to get them to advertise in this uh, in this free publication that was put out, you know, people pick up at grocery stores and those kind of things. This was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So that was a really common thing. People didn't, you know, go on the internet and stuff like that to scroll as much. But it was horrible. I worked there for maybe like eight weeks and I hated it like every single day. Not not so much you know, the cold calling was, was something I didn't enjoy, but it was really the environment of the people. It was just a toxic kind of people that I said to myself, I do not want to ever have to go into sales ever again in my life because just the people that were there. There were a couple of people that were really great, like the manager and the editor of a magazine, really great people, had great conversations with them. But some of the other salespeople were like, you know, chain smokers and, you know, yelling on the phone or whatever, that slam the phone down and then stuff like that. I was just like, that's not an environment I wanted to be in. You started a nonprofit. Talk to me a little bit about the nonprofit and what you did with that. Well, I had, you know, as a teacher, I actually had some financial struggles as well along the years and saw that there were other, many other people. And I, in fact, I had a really kind of health crisis in my family that was the, the impetus for me kind of switching career paths. But even before that, I had seen other people in my community and people that I knew that had struggled with you know, things that happened, a death in the family or health, the sickness, or just you know losing a job, things like that, where people were struggling financially. And I wanted to be able to help and you just help people in my community and people that I knew. And so we started this nonprofit really to raise funds to help people get through you know difficult times, simple as that, uh, providing meals, providing uh, you know clothing and vouchers and things like that, where people would be a little bit you know too embarrassed to come and ask for it. If you have a relationship with people, you can kind of tell when someone's struggling. And, uh, and so that's what I did. It was a really amazing thing. It lasted for many years. I handed it off to someone else and when I kind of went more full-time into real estate, but still helped support that and you know, countless other organizations. That's awesome. Was that a full-time thing that you did? I mean, was the bulk of your time spent on the nonprofit? No, it was, it was not full-time. It was more, you know, it was a volunteer type thing. I definitely sometimes were. I would travel, you know, probably like once every six to eight weeks or so to travel just to go around doing some fundraising and stuff like that. So during those times, at a, a week at a time, every couple of months, that was full-time. But the rest of the time, it was kind of more a part-time thing. That's cool. So at what point did the real estate bug bite you and what was the inspiration for that? Talk to us how that came about. You know, it was, it was I don't want to say by accident because I believe everything happens for a reason. And so I see more divine providence. But like I said, I kind of had a family health crisis and without getting into too many details and that, it really kind of shook me up. And I was had debt, you know, I had consumer debt, I had student loan debt still. And we're struggling, you know, month to month to really, you know, teach your side, love what I was doing, love spending time with the family, but was not really making it. And I never really thought about it too much because I never had a drive to make money or to 
to be, uh, you know, have any financial independence or anything like that. It really wasn't something I was taught at a young age. And so I was, you know, getting by, living very frugally. But this kind of shook us up and incurred many extra costs. I was like, okay, I need to figure something out. And so it was almost by accident. I reached out to many friends of mine. This is about, you know, eight years ago. Uh, what should I do? I'm open to some other, you know, maybe part-time or full-time just opportunities. And real estate kept coming up in conversation with people that I knew. So I you can reach out to some friends and family members that I knew were successful and just said, hey, what should I do? And a lot of them pointed me in the direction of real estate. And that's really where I just started. Okay, let's let's do it. It happened to run into a friend of mine in the parking lot one day and suggested he was a mortgage broker. He was a property manager. He owned some rental, multifamily rental properties on his own and his family did for years and had a lot of experience in the commercial real estate industry. I knew nothing. And I sat down with him for, you know, a couple of hours one day. We we're just talking. And he was teaching me all these like different things about mortgages and about financing and all that stuff. I was like just fascinated because it was all brand new to me at the time. And one thing led to another and ended up just like working, like interning basically for him, working side by side with him and learning a tremendous amount over uh, about an eight month period. Was that in New York or where was that? Uh, so actually that was in Israel also. I was in Israel at the time. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of back and forth a lot over the years, but it was, it was pretty incredible. So we were working again, kind of remotely in the US and I found a passion for it and found really so, you know, found bigger pockets at that time. And it was still in the early stages of bigger pockets and found some other platforms and was really just connecting with a lot of people in the real estate industry and just fascinated how people could make money. And really there was almost no, seemingly no, no ceiling, no limit to that. And there was so much knowledge and information out there that I really assimilated quite a bit just due to my teaching background that I was like, okay, I can do this. And one thing led to another. I did a bunch of other things uh, during that time, some fix and flips and some, you know, did some real estate brokerage as well, just learning how to find properties and learn how to read, you know, things like the GIS and stuff like that, just figuring out uh, the city plans and looking through them. There was so much knowledge out there. I was just like taking in everything. I want to take a step back. You mentioned that you don't believe that there are any accidents, that everything's kind of God-ordained or however you universe, whatever, however you want to phrase it. In my research, I believe I came across this story. You were reading Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Can you go into that story about you were studying that? And then you, you know what I'm implying here, but I'd like to hear that. It was a great story and I'd like to hear it. That was a great story. Yeah. So as, as you said, one of the first business books that I ever read was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it was all the things that were in there were things that I felt were, to me at least, self-evident. And But he just arranged it in such a way that was really powerful, really moving. But one thing that I had not really come across beforehand was this concept of synergy. And obviously, that's the sixth habit is one of the things that brings everything together. And so I was reading about this synergy and literally at that time was you know doing the the mortgage brokerage with my friend and was still open to opportunities and saw a sign for a company called Synergy Real Estate. And I like took that as, you know, a really eye-opening sign. It was like, oh, very interesting. Synergy real estate. I wonder what that's about. And uh, you know, I said like hiring agents. And I was like, okay, well, we give this guy a call. And literally I did and went down the next day in his office, met him. Really cool guy, young guy, about like 24, 25 years old at the time. And he was crushing it in, in real estate, had made you know a lot of money in brokerage, working for someone else, started started his own company. And he also named the company Synergy based on the seven habits. And I was like, wow, this is really... Uh, and we ended up hitting it off, uh, becoming really good friends. I ended up working for him as a broker and learning that side of business. And that really opened up a lot of opportunities to me. 
And we ended up becoming partners and doing a couple of deals together as well. So it was, it was really amazing just from that one. You know, it's what I saw was when you're reading something, and this is a really incredible concept in psychology, you may have come across things like all the time, but you may never have noticed it. But when you learn something new, your mind focuses on that thing. And so you'll end up seeing those things. And I forget the actual technical term for it. I think it's the reticular activating system. That's exactly right. So like you're looking to buy a new car, for example, and you come across this, uh, you know, I don't know, the Toyota Sienna, just like a minivan. You're like, okay, that's a great car. Uh, but you never, never looked at it before. All of a sudden you start seeing them everywhere. And I don't know, I love that, just the clues that God or the universe gives to you. Like if you're aware, they're, they're out there. And it's cool that you made the step and talked to that guy, introduced yourself and had a relationship with him. I wanted to talk about your, you, it sounded like you worked for about eight or nine months with a gentleman. Were you just kind of sitting with him, shadowing him? Were you working for free? How did that work for you? Yeah, so I was, I was shadowing him. I was learning for him. It was someone that he had you know, a decade of experience or more in real estate. And literally, I would sit with him in his office every day for, you know, I don't, I don't even remember how long every day, but it was like, you know, easily four or five hours just learning from him. We started doing cold calls. You know, he was, he was doing mortgage financing, you know, brokerage, and he was doing his own things on the side also. So he'd have calls, had, he had some property that the pipe burst and he had to call the property manager. And so I was literally learning from him every step of the way. But the main thing we were doing was, um, you know, brokering loans. So it was regular traditional commercial financing as well as hard money loans. So that was, eye-opening as well. So we're dealing on the commercial side as well as the residential side. I just remember calling, you know, banks, like cold calling banks and researching like which bank in the city, uh, local banks, you know, and things like that, who we talk to and just get them on the phone, get term sheets and all kinds of stuff like that. So it was really, and it was, yeah, I was literally working for free. So I was working on commission. You know, if we ended up closing something, I'd originate tons and tons of loans. We ended up closing something, obviously I'd get a commission on that. So, but I was doing it more than anything for the, for the experience and just for the knowledge. And you had had the experience with the magazine earlier when you were in your late, whatever, 18, 19, or 20. And so, you know, you, you weren't shy to cold call, right? I wasn't shy to it, but I also learned a little more about it just through him in terms and something that I apply even now still today, which is not just blind cold calling, right? Not just taking a list and just calling people. That's what I despise. And I think everyone can relate to that in terms of either receiving or, or uh, you know, making those calls, but it's more about an educated cold call. You know, you find out more information and the more information you have, the more you can make that connection with the person on the other line. And so that's what I did a lot of research before actually reaching out to call, call people. So, you know, I go online and research this bank, for example, and uh, look at all the products and, you know, all the things. And I come to them and say, Hey, listen, we have a Rite Aid in that neighborhood where you're in. This is the length of the lease. This is et cetera. And you know, do you have a term sheet? Can you provide something? I see your program for this X, Y, and Z. So obviously it was um, you know, cold calling, but again, with a lot more background and knowledge. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash 
Whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Really good advice too to handle cold calls in a way that you're educating, you're teaching, and it's your strong point in many ways. It's what you're all about. Yeah, it's also you know you appreciate you know if you get a cold call from someone and they know more about you, like this conversation, right, Patrick? You've done your research on this podcast, which I can't say is the same with you know hundreds of other podcasts I've done. You know, you obviously take the time to get to know someone, do your research before even interviewing them, which I love. And so too, if you get a cold call and someone calls you and they know that you have XYZ business and your pain points are this, and they know they can provide something to help with, you'll be much more receptive to that call than somebody just calls them like, are you a business owner? Um, like, you know, like, uh, no, thank you. Wrong number. It goes a long way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good advice. Good points. So you mentioned a few fix and flips that you did. Was that your first real estate investments that you did? And how did those go? Did, was it something you enjoyed or not so much? Not so much. What about it? Did you not like? It just wasn't my skill set. You know, it was like, you hear these things, you see bigger pockets and you hear all the, you know, these different shows and stuff like that. It's like, oh yeah, so easy to do. And I had a friend who was also had never done it before, but knew other people that did. And he ended up meeting someone that had a really close tie to the sheriff's auction in that county. And he said, we can get properties before they go to auction, you know, so like really, really dirt cheap. And I was like, okay, that sounds like great. Someone I really trusted. So I was like, okay, let's, you know, we can do this together. And it just, the things that I didn't, so there were things that were great about it, but there were things that I didn't like with, you know, specifically just dealing with contractors, dealing with delays and things that were unexpected that were totally out of your control. You know, I like to have a little more control and investment. And when something's totally out of your hands, it's like, that's not really a solid investment strategy. So that's one thing that I definitely, you know, if you're doing all the work yourself, it can be much more fulfilling, but I wasn't, and I didn't enjoy that aspect of the, of the business. So 
we had delays, we had change orders, we had all kinds of stuff, which contractors are notorious for. And uh, the, the first deal that we did, it ended up sitting, even though we finished it and completed it, ended up sitting on the market for like six months. And so that just killed the returns, all right? I mean, the whole business plan was to have it you know, flip within 90 days and then have the capital reinvested, et cetera. And so having it sits you know, twice or more than twice as long than we had expected really killed a lot of the metrics. What was the reason that it sat so long? Was it just overpriced? I don't think it was, I don't, honestly don't think it was overpriced. You never know what the reason is. Uh, you know, I think maybe to me, my, my uh, real reason is that this was kind of God's way of telling me, don't do this. Like, this is not for you. This is, you know, don't waste your time doing this. Uh, so that was my takeaway. Yeah. So what happened next? You, you still wanted to stay in real estate, even after the fix and flip experience. What happened next? I ended up, you know, it was just open to opportunities. We're still doing some brokerage, but uh, had an introduction to this company, Madison Commercial Real Estate, based out of uh, Lakewood, New Jersey. Really great company, title company. And they had this cost segregation division. I didn't know much about it at all, but was made the introduction. They were looking for someone to do you know, business development. And I was like, okay, yeah, listen, why not? It's a great introduction. I was open to opportunities. And I ended up just interviewing, taking a job. And, you know, really, the rest is history, like I like to say. So I want to hear more about that. How did you sell them on yourself to hire you as the business development guy? You didn't have a, an accounting background. You had a little bit of real estate experience. I, I just want to hear how you talked your way into the job. Sure. You know, fascinatingly enough, the little bit of real estate experience that I had was apparently enough to you know convince them that and the teaching background is something that I found was, you know, they were looking to have someone give webinars and, and do stuff like that and write some articles. And so that was something that I could do. And I was, I really went out of my way to show them that I could do what they were looking for and more. And I think they were just kind of impressed by, by me. I, you know, obviously a background in teaching for many years. And so that really, I think was the clincher more than anything else. And we're going to get into cost segregation here shortly. It is, uh, it's definitely something that needs to be taught. And I'm eager to be taught here today as well, because it's relatively new to me. So I wanted to talk first, though, about your... You've got... At the beginning of your podcast, you say that your network is your net worth. Talk to me exactly what you mean by that and why you chose to put that at the beginning of each episode. It's a great question. I think that it's something that always stood out to me. And the more I got into real estate, the more opportunities opened up to me because of that network. And so it doesn't mean literally, uh, you know, your network is your net worth. Obviously, you can't put that on your balance sheet, you know, the number of uh, friends that you have. But, you know, Jim Rohn or, you know, Zig Ziglar, one of the two or, or both of them were, were famous for saying, you know, you are the five people that you surround yourself most with. And I truly firmly believe that if you want to be something, surround yourself with other people that have already done that, and you will end up doing that same thing as well, because they'll push you, whether it means, you know, physically, you know, they'll test your limits, but just being around them, hopefully you'll be inspired and be driven to, to do more than you're currently doing. So social media has really over the past, you know, five, six years that I've been involved in this business has really opened up opportunities to me beyond measure. And I know it's kind of cliche, but it has, I've, I can't even imagine where I'd be right now without the people that I've met through literally through social media that many, you know, hundreds literally have become friends and, you know, and met in person and have 
really taken my life in the business perspective to a whole different level that I never even never even conceived of. And so the fact that I've you know invested in multiple limited partner opportunities and in, in multifamily and self storage RV parks, mobile home parks, you know these many different asset classes that I knew nothing about five years ago, you know, six years ago. And so I learned about those through my network. And so literally my net worth is because, you know, a byproduct of that. I could take this in a lot of different directions at this point, but I, you started off and I wanted to talk about social media later, but since you brought it up, let's get into it now. You started off primarily focusing on LinkedIn. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. And just have recently gotten into real estate Twitter. Talk to us about like the differences that you find in LinkedIn versus Twitter. What's the pros and cons of each? I started on LinkedIn almost by accident about you know five years ago. Again, I was just prospecting, looking for people. And just the one thing that I found, an amazing thing about LinkedIn is that if you, and I recommend anyone to do this right now, if you have a LinkedIn account, go ahead and type your name into Google. Okay. If you don't have an extremely common name, then guaranteed, guaranteed that your LinkedIn page will come up, if not the first, in the first five search inquiries of Google search. Okay. That means your name. So nowadays, if anyone is looking for you or looking to do business with you or anything, they're going to Google your name. That's just that simple fact. What happens with a Google name? They'll, they'll learn about you. Yes. Your social media files, even if they're not so active, will show up there. The more active you are on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, those will show up towards the top of the search. But LinkedIn, even if you're not active, and that's the amazing thing that I found, it will still come up at the top of the search query. Now, your LinkedIn profile. And so I ended up just like stumbling upon it because I was looking to, you know, searching for people. I had an account for many, many years, but it was just like, you know, college friends, it was a place to post resumes and post to get a place to get a job. But what I found about five years ago, there was a transition after Microsoft bought LinkedIn was that it became much more of a social media content sharing platform, but it was still very professional. I knew, you know, I wasn't on any of their platforms, didn't have a Facebook account, Instagram, anything like that, not even Twitter. But LinkedIn, I found was, okay, I had an account because you know I had friends that I connected with. And now I kept finding people sharing educational and inspirational content. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe this can work. And so I just literally started posting content, you know, just educational stuff and found people were connecting. If you were resonating with that and making connections, I ended up being invited on a podcast, <laughs> my first podcast through that. And that really snowballed everything from there. And so I built, you know, 25,000 followers on LinkedIn and it's been an amazing community that I found through that in specifically in the real estate space. And you know, created a podcast, been on 400 guesting appearances. And most recently, someone pointed out to me, there's this thing called retweet, right? Real estate Twitter, which uh, I didn't even know was a thing. And someone you know, tagged me or something one time. I opened an account many years ago, three or four years ago, and ended up just looking at it one time. Someone tagged me and uh, I got a notification. So like, I went, went, checked it out. I was like, oh, interesting. These are some people that I know from LinkedIn who are over here and they're like, it's so much better here on Twitter because there's so much more kind of community and, and discussion as opposed to LinkedIn where there is that. There's a lot of downsides to LinkedIn as well. There's you know, spam and the inbox and that kind of stuff. But there's less of a you know, discussion sometimes on a specific topic, whereas the, the retweet has a lot more of that kind of back and forth discussion from, from many, many different perspectives in the industry. Uh, LinkedIn is still great to make incredible connections, to post content, to have those kind of interactions in your community. And there are discussions, don't get me wrong, but it's less involved. I mean, you, it's rare to have like a thread, have a post and then have a, a discussion back and forth, you know, more than four or five comments uh, back and forth between one person. In Twitter, you can have, you know, hundreds. 
So you're a couple months into Twitter. Are you, do you focus your time equally on them? Or are you leaning more towards Twitter at this point? How do you, you spend a lot of time on your social media network. How much time? I want to know. I need to tell my wife this because I'm, I spend a lot of time as well. And I said, it's work, honey. You like, you need to understand it. I'm working. That's exactly the point. If it is work and you are getting what you intend to get out of it, then it doesn't make a difference if if that's your platform for outreach versus, you know, email or cold calls. I find that you're for outreach, especially for people in sales or business development, social media is the best way to use in marketing. And I'm a huge, huge proponent of that. So how many hours a day? Many, many hours a day. I mean, I have I've scheduled calls and podcasts and all kinds of stuff like that throughout the day. But basically any in-between time, you know, my social channels are open and I'm there commenting or, or posting. We talked about the network as your net worth. What are some ways and advice you have for somebody new getting involved in real estate to start building their network? Social media. I mean, that's really it. Like find people that you aspire to be, learn from them, connect with them. If you can meet people in person, uh, that's great. But nowadays, there are plenty of uh, online networking events like Zoom events like I have every week. And I've done this since the onset of COVID. We started a, a weekly meetup on Zoom, where you have a guest speaker come in and and then breakout rooms in Zoom where you have networking, you get to know people. And so there are plenty of those out there. You can meet people in the industry. You never know where I've literally had people on my meetup uh, find new jobs or find uh, partners and investors and literally from just connecting with people through these channels. And yeah, I mean, it's great if you can go to in-person meetups in your in your town, real estate meetups, there are, they exist everywhere, right? But you don't have to limit it to your, you know, your town, you can do it online anywhere. And so that's the first advice I would say, just connect with people, make those relationships, and then keep educating yourself. Be humble. Don't think that you know you know, everything you know more than you actually know, because the smartest people that I know are people that constantly are learning and constantly think the more that they know, the less that they know. Meaning the more that you learn, the more you actually learn how much there is to know and how little of that you actually know. I wanted to ask you too about, you said you're the average of the five people that you are around. Does that include books, social media? Do you include that as well? To a certain extent, I think it, it really has a lot to do with kind of personal, you know, people rub off on you when you surround yourself with people. So yes, you can, you know, if you're an introvert and not really talking to people, then yeah, probably the people you're surrounding with are, are not real people or, you know, online or <laughs> our books and things like that, podcasts. But, you know, it has a lot more impact when you actually spend time with people in person. I want to hear a little bit about you've done a great job at, at building a both your LinkedIn and Twitter following. What kind of advice do you have for people to build a following? It really comes down to two components, any social media. Number one is find the right people that you want in your network and engage with their posts and engage with them, right? And what does that mean, engage with? It means adding relevant either questions or uh, valuable comments in their own posts. And so that's something that anyone can do. So a lot of people struggle with social media, like, mm, how do I, you know, I don't know what to post. I don't know what to post. And that's a huge struggle. And I totally relate with that. The one, that's the second step is getting over that and just, you know, hunkering down and posting. What can you post? There's so much information. The way that I uh, view social media in terms of posting is just sharing your journey or sharing what you're doing. So great example of that podcast, right? I can do a post right now that I had this great podcast with, you know, the Real Estate 101 podcast with Patrick. And it was it was amazing. And that is a social media post. Yeah, sure. It's not adding tremendous amount of value. But when the podcast goes live and we can share 
you know, some clips from that, hopefully that will be adding more value. If you know something, it doesn't matter what that is, share that or ask questions. And that can be a great post. So again, it's two components. One is engaging with the right people and growing your following that way and, uh, and growing your network through that. And the second thing is posting original, valuable content over and over again. And I know a lot of people struggle with that. So I'm not going to sit here and say it's easy, but once you get used to it, it just comes naturally for a lot of people. And you will learn a tremendous amount. My writing and my communication has gotten so much better just through uh, using social media. And has your business taken off because of social media as well? Tremendously. I mean, I like to say 10x, it's like more like 100x. Yeah, directly, directly impacted. That's crazy. I want to get now into what you're known for, which is cost segregation. You are known as the cost seg king. And I've been investing in real estate for you know quite a while. And cost segregation just came into my awareness probably this, I don't know, within the last six or seven months, largely through real estate Twitter. Keith Wasserman said it was like the 10th wonder of the world or something like that. And I was like, what? what is this cost segregation thing? So I want to get into that. Can you explain to us really simply what cost segregation is and then how you became an expert on it? Sure. So cost segregation is an advanced form of depreciation. So depreciation is a tax deduction that anyone who owns a property, a rental or investment property, so it doesn't apply to your primary residence, but any investment property, the government actually allows you to take an income tax deduction called depreciation based on the purchase price of that property. So you can literally write off the value of what was paid for that property over a 27 and a half year or 39 year period. And so that's called your depreciation deduction. And again, I say it's based on, uh, it's called depreciation because it's based on the principle that things go down in value as time goes on, but it's not actually happening because it's not intrinsic to the property. It's specifically to the taxpayer. So the depreciation on the property starts over that 27 and a half years starts over every time it's transacted and changes hands. And so just so real quick, so the 27 and a half years, that's for residential, correct. correct? And the 39 is for commercial? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so kind of arbitrary numbers, but that is what the rules say. So there are actually different schedules that certain components of a property depreciate on faster five or seven or 15 year schedules. And that's where cost segregation comes in. It used to be called component depreciation which essentially is, is what it sounds like. You can depreciate certain components like furniture or fixtures of the property at over a five-year schedule. So now they've got conservation. We take that cost that was paid for the property and we segregate it and break it down into different components, into different buckets that uh, through an engineering breakdown of the property, we can see, oh, the furniture or the cabinets or the carpeting, you know, all depreciate on a five-year schedule. The value is X. And so now we can take the value of those uh, those components as a deduction over a five-year period instead of just lumping everything together over a 27 and a half year period. So it's a cash flow mechanism, essentially allowing you to take bigger deductions in the earlier years of ownership. When you're talking to real estate investors, what kind of percentage, roughly speaking, would you say know about cost segregation versus those that don't? Well, I mean, this really is going to come to answer the second question that you had previously is how I became the expert in the field, because I was fascinated when I got involved in it. I had reached out to everyone that I knew that was in real estate previously. And I found that, you know, I just asked them, you know, what do you know about conservation? And I got primarily two answers, right? There are two opposite ends of the spectrum. One answer was, yes, this is great. It's an awesome thing. We use it. And the other answer I got for everyone else, which was the vast majority was, I've never even heard of this. Okay, so there was almost no middle ground 
of people that, yeah, we know, we know about it, but don't really use it. And this is something that I literally every single time I give a presentation in person or on a webinar is I ask this question, you know, what is your familiarity with castration? You know, A, the first time you're hearing of it, you know, B, I've heard of it, but don't really understand it. You know, C, I know really well, I've used it, et cetera. So the vast majority, I'd say still to this day, about 80% of any group that I speak to is in that first category of either they've never heard of it or they've heard of it, but don't understand it. And, uh, and so that to me, at the beginning and still to this day really has been, I guess, a blessing for me is because, hey, I'm just a teacher. That's all I'm doing. I'm just educating people about this. And when, once you learn about it, for most people, it's almost a no-brainer to use it. And so selling a service, which is essentially what we're doing because our company provides this service, we're the biggest national company doing this, is the way that people end up using the service is first learning about it. And once you know what it is, then it's, it's almost a no-brainer to do it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. That's airbnb.com host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Why do you think it's so little known? Why is it, it seems crazy that more people don't know about it and utilize it? 
you know, I've done my best over the past, you know, five, six years to educate the masses about this, but it's my theory is that it has something to do with taxes. And for most people, if you ask them about taxes or mention anything about taxes, their brains kind of shut off. And for whatever reason, like, okay, taxes, my, my accountant deals with that. But the amazing thing is, is that the vast majority of accountants either don't know about this or don't know enough about it to recommend it to their clients. And that may be for, like I said, maybe they just don't know or don't understand enough, or they're not proactive. Uh, they're not tax advisors per se. They're people that are put, you know, putting in numbers. And that's what most majority of accountants are. And so that to me, that's a combination where the investors themselves don't know what it is and they rely on anything that's tax related. They assume that their accountant is going to take care of that for that. But on the accounting side, they're not proactive to necessarily tell their clients about all the different options that they do have. And so you just end up with this void. And that's really where I came in and hopefully have been not been able to spread the knowledge. Yeah, I had the same experience with my accountant this past tax season. I asked him, you know, what cost segregation was and he kind of gave me gave an explanation, not very clear, but I kind of was wondering like why have we not discussed this before? Like why hasn't this even been brought up as a at least a consideration to look into? It sounds like a lot of accountants just don't also don't know about it or don't know how to do it. Would you say that's true? Like a lot of accountants don't know how to do a cost segregation study? Well, that's part of it because it can't be done by accountants. Oh, it cannot be done. Correct. So 99% of accounting firms cannot do this in-house because it does require an engineering component to it. And so in the IRS guidelines, the cost segregation audit techniques guide, it clearly says this, you know, cost segregation must be done. A quality cost segregation must be done by someone who has experience in construction and engineering. And so even if it, and there are, you know, the large accounting firms, the big four and, you know, big 10, whatever, they all have engineers in-house and provide this for their clients. So not saying that no one does this, but the vast majority of accountants, because it requires that kind of third party or or engineering component to it, they're not doing it on their own. Uh, And so that's really been a, a big, I guess, restraint, if you will, for accountants to do this because, hey, this is out of my wheelhouse. I need to go to a third party or engineer it. So that's already out of my wheelhouse. I'll focus on what I can do personally. So when you're doing your business development, are you reaching out more to real estate investors or are, are you also reaching out to accountants to educate them to say, hey, here's what we do. Send your clients our way. We can do this study for them. It's a combination. And we have people in our company that focus on you know, the accountant outreach. For a while, I was giving CPE courses, which is the continued education for CPAs that they need to. Uh, in order to retain your CPA, your certified public accounting license, you need to take a certain number of hours of courses every single year to renew that. And so one of the things that I was doing is working uh, on giving these courses, providing these credits and using the accreditation, et cetera. But we went through that process. And, and I would be teaching and giving webinars to accountants or in-person events to accountants and, and teaching about conservation. And again, the same percentage, literally, among the accountants, when I'd asked that poll, that question at the beginning is, what's your experience with conservation? And the vast majority didn't know what it was or knew very little about it. And so, yes, there is that component. But I personally try to focus on educating real estate investors just because it's a much more First of all, it's it's a network that the people I get along with a lot more. You know, cabinets tend to be a little more boring. Entrepreneurs we tend to be a little more exciting and, and great personalities match my personality a little bit better. And so that's where I've been focusing on and especially podcasting. And so that's to me has been probably the biggest growth vehicle for myself, just reaching more people possible. You know, being on the Bigger Pockets podcast that was very, you know, obviously eye-opening to uh, the people that I reached through that. 
So you offer a, a free 15-minute consultation. What does that phone call look like if I were to call you? Typically, I like it's, you know, for someone that has a property or they have, you know, something under contract or they're looking to understand more about consideration from an action standpoint. Like they want to, that consultation is usually, we like to also run the numbers of free feasibility analysis on any property. So usually I'll try to combine them both. If someone schedules a call, I'll ask them, hey, thanks for scheduling. Would you, uh, you know, be interested in a free analysis on any property? And so the call can be a little more directed. A lot of it, again, it's just education. People have questions and they're mostly the same questions over and over again. So, you know, I've created some content that I can point them to, but it's really just getting to know people. Uh, everyone has their story and everyone has their business model and people have, you know, some of specific questions. And for me, it's more about getting to know the person because that is usually the, what's going to encourage them to do cost creation or not is based on their personal situation. So there's you know, things like the real estate professional status. And you know, for short-term rentals, there's, there's specific rules regarding that. And so I want to get to know, is this, you know, can you even use these deductions if you get a conservation study done? And so that's really usually the, one of the first parts of the conversation. If we get past that, then we can talk about you know, the real numbers and how this can actually benefit you. So are there some properties that benefit more from a cost segregation study than others? And what would those be? Certainly. Yeah. Certain types of properties. I mean, on the high end, you're looking at like gas stations, car washes. Those are, can be all literally cost segregated, the entire value. Then you'll have things like mobile home parks, RV parks. Part of the reason why I've invested in those assets is because the large amount of accelerated depreciation, the cost segregation, because the majority of what you're buying there is land improvements. And so land itself doesn't depreciate, but what's on top of the land does, like concrete, pavement, you know, asphalt, landscaping, fencing, signage, all that stuff has value to it. And when we assign a value to those components, you can now take the value of those you know, 15 year depreciation at a faster rate. And with this thing called bonus depreciation, you can actually take the entire accelerated depreciation in the first year. And so that's a huge, been a huge benefit for the past few years. And so those are probably the properties that are on the higher end of conservation. I want to kind of slow down a little bit. The non-structural things that can be use in a cost segregation study, what are some of those things? Let's say I, I own an office building, which I do. I just bought an office building. What are the things that I can write off in a five-year period versus the 39-year period? So there's really two categories. There's a five-year, which is considered personal property or tangible property. And then there's a 15-year, which is land improvement. So I mentioned some of those before in office buildings, you're going to have a parking lot, you're going to have you know signage, landscaping. And so all the value of that, it's going to include a 15-year schedule. The majority is always going to be in the five-year, which can include things like furniture, fixtures, window treatments. In an office building, you'll have telecom uh, systems. You'll have security cameras. You'll have light fixtures and, and things like that. Uh, if there are movable partitions, you know, in a lot of office spaces, you'll have movable partitions. Those are also all considered five-year property. Flooring, if it's vinyl flooring or carpeting, wall coverings, all of these things I'm mentioning all fit into that five-year category. And so we're going to have uh, sometimes, you know, 20 or 30% of the total building cost is going to fit into these faster depreciation categories and can get, you know, like I said, much larger deductions in those earlier years. What's a cost segregation study cost? Does it depend on the, I would imagine, the size of the building or what's a, like an average range for uh, a study? It does depend on the size. It's not contingent on the cost of the building or the amount of tax savings. That's actually not uh, proper to do because the IRS you know, frowns upon that. In fact, it's you know, not officially illegal, but people have been uh, slapped with punishments and penalties for doing it like that. So yes, it is contingent solely on the size of the type of the property. I'd say the average, it's somewhere between, I'd say four to $10,000 
for most types of properties, the larger the property, the, the more obviously more work there is. Because again, it does require an engineer to actually study each unit, especially an office building or retail property. They're going to go into each and every single suite or unit to see how the differences are. Whereas a multifamily property, for example, they only need to go into one of each unit type and then can use all the rest just to extrapolate that. If you're doing a value add deal, at what point does it make sense to do the cost segregation study at the like at the time of acquisition or after the after the renovation has been completed or both? It's really, you know, it depends. That's really the answer. It depends on a lot of things. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to cover all of that in this conversation, but most people like to get it done in the beginning at the acquisition stage. So you can capture everything in the property as is and can accelerate depreciation over those. Once you've done renovations, you can actually, many cases, then capture the depreciation amount of those renovations and uh, and take conservation on that as well. So it can be done in two stages, but again, will depend on, on many circumstances. You mentioned bonus depreciation. Explain that a little bit more and some of the tax changes that are taking place that will affect bonus depreciation in the future. Yeah, in the in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, so it's back in 2017, uh, there was a change to the rule that instead of just taking regular cost irrigation, which is five-year, 15-year, you know, 39-year schedules and taking some of those accelerated amounts over those faster respective years, bonus depreciation, 100% bonus depreciation came into the books in 2018 saying that you have the option, once you've done a cost irrigation study, you have the option to take those faster depreciation schedules in the first year, 100% of those deductions in year one. So that's called 100% bonus depreciation has been uh, you know, a game changer for, for many, many people over the years. In 2023, and it was written in the books when they made this pass this law, it's starting to sunset. So it's going to start phasing out by 20% each year. So in 2023, it's only 80% bonus depreciation, and then next year, 60, etc., what that means is once you do a cost seg study, you can take 80% of those accelerated deductions in the first year. The remaining 20% can still be spread out over those five and 15 year schedules. So it's not going to be as advantageous as it was last year and previous years, but still extremely, extremely beneficial. Will that affect your business at all the, as it reduces in the bonus depreciation? Do you think that will affect business for you guys? I don't think so. I think to the contrary. People will who may not have considered cost seg before, uh, just because of the current environment. It, you know, people trying to get as many tax deductions as they can to kind of cover maybe for for other decreases in income and things like that. So it may have an effect. But like I said before, conservation was around for a long time before this bonus depreciation came into into the books and was extremely beneficial beforehand. So I think it will continue to be so even as uh, bonus depreciation you know phases out. I wanted to talk about your podcast. I'm relatively new to doing podcasts. You're maybe my, I don't know, 20th interview, 15th or 20th, somewhere like that. But you've you've done over, I think, what, three or 400 episodes? I, you've done on your own podcast, Weiss Advice, over 300 episodes. What got you into doing podcasts? What's it been like for you? I also want to hear, why'd you start it and what's it been like? So after being a guest on so many podcasts, for you know, for a couple of years, I really enjoyed this kind of back and forth, and enjoyed the conversations and the education. But I also wanted to learn as well. And like I said, I really enjoyed this kind of platform. And so I, for a long time, was thinking about starting my own podcast just to interview other people. And it took me a while to to launch it, but eventually I did. And that's correct, over three hundred episodes to date at, on the Voice Advice podcast. And 
it's more than anything, just been an opportunity for me to get to know people better and kind of strengthen that relationship. You know, when you, I'm sure you can tell when you have this conversation with someone, it's now like a whole new level of relationship. You know, it's very difficult, I find, and people can probably attest to this. If you want to take someone out to coffee or just get on a Zoom call and talk for, you know, half an hour with some random person, they're probably going to say no. But if you offer them to be on a podcast, they're likely going to say yes. And so it's really an opportunity more than anything else for that connection uh, between the guest and the host more than it is for the audience. That's what I found. And what kind of topics do you like to cover for our audience? So my uh, approach is actually not to look at it in topics, but in people. And so I approach people that I know that are successful in real estate and 90% or more of the guests I've had on my podcast are actually clients of mine that are real estate investors that have done cost seg. And so I already have that rapport with them. They are very successful people. And so for me, it's more about just interviewing them, hearing their story, as opposed to you know s- speaking about a specific topic. Each one will have their niche and will end up talking about you know a topic or, or two anyways. But again, it's not, uh, not focused on the topic, more on the person. Do you have any advice for how to be a great guest and a great host? I mean, you could, you've done both. So let's hear some advice on being a great guest and a great host. Well, a couple things. I would say just no-brainers. Make sure to have good sound setup. You know, it doesn't cost a lot to get a professional microphone. I mean, I still have a pretty relatively cheap one. This is the you know, Blue Yeti. It's like three, 400 bucks. It's not, you know, not high quality at all. Uh, in fact, I'm probably getting a new one shortly. But that's one thing. And that's really simple. <laughs> Um, but being a good guest is just being open to conversation and not trying to lead the conversation in one direction or another. I've been on plenty of podcasts as a guest, then they'll prepare the questions beforehand. And, and I'm totally fine with that. I'm, I love that. You know, I'm pretty versatile, but don't try to lead it in the direction that you want to lead it in. Rather, just kind of go with the flow and see where it takes you. Yeah, that's good advice. Love it. I wanted to talk a little bit more I read an acronym that you have, it's called HOPE. And I wanted to talk more about the role of faith for you, which is super important. And you talk openly about it, which I really admire. Talk to us what the acronym HOPE is, and then how just your faith affects your business life. HOPE, uh, and I learned this from a friend of mine, actually someone who came on my podcast, who said, help one person every day. So that's what HOPE, that acronym is. And I just, I resonate with that a lot. And it was, to me, kind of what my life has been about. It's just helping other people. And even through the education I, I, and through the conservation, I literally, I see it like I'm helping people. And, and I am because helping people save money on taxes is a great service and a great thing to help people. But going out of your way to make connections, going out of your way to, to find people who are maybe struggling and see if you can help them either financially or with mentoring or so many different ways. And so that's one thing that I go out of my way to do every single day. And to me, that's kind of my definition of success uh, is how can I help other people? If I can help other people, you you can you know make sure that you will be helped uh, tremendously. So my faith and you know I'm, I'm religious, Jewish, you know, Orthodox, Hasidic. There are a lot of different terms for it, whatever. But essentially, what it means is that I have a very close relationship with uh, with my my faith, with my people, with God, and you know we see it as our life has a mission. Everything, everyone has a purpose in life, and everyone has a mission. And what that is is kind of. We've been given instructions. We have very detailed rules, a rule book, the Torah, which is really an instruction manual <laughs> is really what it is. And so a whole code of law that comes along with that. So a lot of religious kind of practices that we do on a daily basis, but a lot of it has to do with just you know interpersonal interactions. Like how do we 
treat other people, like how oh, do business dealings and the like. And so it really allows you to open yourself up to a spiritual or metaphysical world that is there. Like again, going back to what we were talking about before, like constant kind of the analogy and education, you don't know what you don't know. And so the more you open yourself up to learn, the more you realize how little you know. And so when you're in the face of, you know, infinite, you know, God, there's no end to uh, to knowledge. And so there's no end to that relationship either. And so to me, that's become uh, a very solid component of, you know, obviously who I am, what I do, how I act and conduct myself in business and through all the interactions I have as well. Yeah, I can attest when I reached out to you to, to be a guest on the show, you actually asked me, and I, I said, what are some, a couple podcasts I could listen to? And you mentioned a few, but then you also were like, please let me know if I can connect you with anyone. And you know, I can attest that like you, you live by what you're saying and it's pretty awesome. I think it's a great way to live. I wanted to jump into a quick fire round. Your favorite Twitter account. You know, there's so many anonymous accounts and that's what fascinates me about Twitter more than any other platform. Like every other platform, it's social media. These are people that you know. And so there's a, a connection there. And so Twitter, to me, it's a little bit strange that there's so many anonymous accounts because you don't really know who the person on the other side of that uh, that profile is. And so to me, it's hard to have a favorite uh, in terms of that because even if it's someone that I maybe like their content, like strip mall guys, it's just amazing, right? His content is just incredible. But I don't know who the guy is, right? I'd love to get to know him. Maybe I do. And he's just stringing me along. It's quite possible that I do know. It. But again, it's hard to kind of say that because I don't want to necessarily give a favor to someone that I wouldn't necessarily you know, connect with in, in real life. Yeah, there's so many good ones out there. Second one, most impactful book. Um, from a business perspective, I think the most impactful book would have to be The Seven Habits that, that we mentioned earlier. And then you kind of mentioned it, but what, what does success mean to you? Just helping other people. Success is not financial whatsoever. You know, and one thing that I've learned from, and again, I asked a similar question on my show and the vast majority of people answer this, not in re- with regards to finances or, uh, you know, a number, which is fascinating to me, but rather the answer in terms of impact or how can I, you know, do for other people or how can I have more control of my time? So finance or wealth, monetary wealth is only a means to an end, right? It's really how to give back. That's a great place to end it here. Yona, I really appreciate your time. It's been awesome talking to you. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you who want to reach out and learn more about you or learn more about cost segregation? Uh, you can find me on all the social platforms we mentioned up until now. Uh, you can also go to yonaweiss.com. Yeah. And I encourage everybody to check out your podcast. I had fun researching it and listening to quite a few. It's been It's a really good show and you've got great guests and you're a great host too. So anyway, thanks a lot for your time today, Yona. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.